Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Arc's Four Year Innovation Podcast. I'm Yassine, uh, and I cover cryptocurrencies and blockchain at Arc. And today we have the pleasure of being joined by uh, Rick Edelman, founder and chairman of one of the largest independent registered investment advisors, Edelman Financial Engines as well as founder of RIA Digital Assets Council, a council dedicated to advancing the RIA community's awareness, knowledge, and understanding of the digital asset opportunity at large. We're also joined by none other than uh, Kathy Wood, uh, CEO and CIO of ARK Invest. So thank you both for for joining us. Thank you, Yassine. Great. So there's obviously a lot we can talk about, but given that I cover crypto at ARC, I'm going to be a little bit selfish and have the conversation be focused around crypto. And so we, we've all had our kind of own experiences about how we fell into the crypto rabbit hole, what our real aha moment was. Uh, so why don't we start out with that? Rick? Great to be with you, Yassim. For me, it wasn't a search for Bitcoin uh, or uh, stumbling onto it either. I was focusing on exponential technologies broadly. I had had the opportunity to meet uh, Ray Kurzweil, who is on the faculty at Harvard and one of the two co-founders of Singularity University, he along with Peter Diamandis. And in my several hour time that I spent with Ray, he encouraged me to go to Singularity University and he facilitated my enrollment. And I went in 2012. I was interviewing Ray for my TV show on public television at the time. And uh, that was in 2010. And so in 2012, I went to the program, went through their executive program, and, and that was my first introduction to a deep dive of exponential technologies. And as part of that, Bitcoin was part of the conversation, as you would expect when dealing with anything futuristic. So the exposure to Bitcoin you know, back in 2012 was still very new. Uh, it had only been invented a couple of years earlier, and there were more questions and answers about what it was. And uh, I found it very, very intriguing. The entire concept that Satoshi had laid out, uh, Satoshi being the individual or, or group of people who invented Bitcoin, my personal view, it's an individual, uh, not a group. Only because how do you how does a group keep a secret like that? So I just figure it's got to be one person. That uh, when Satoshi invented Bitcoin, the attributes that Bitcoin had, the aspirations it had, were I thought very compelling uh, and very exciting. But at the same time, also it had been completely untested. It was rife with fraud. Mount Gox was all in the news at the time. There was astonishing volatility. And it had all the earmarks of a Ponzi scheme, of a pump and dump scheme, of just outright fraud. The regulators had not addressed it in any way. It wasn't on anybody's radar. So I spent the next year 
studying it, learning about it, trying to figure it out. Is it real? Is it not? What's the underlying technology? How does it work? Uh, just doing the kind of due diligence that we do as financial advisors and at a fairly slow pace because it wasn't all that urgent for me. But after about almost a year of doing this, I was convinced that it's real. It's not going away. It's a thing. Still didn't know what the thing was, but it's a thing. And so I uh, made my first investment in Bitcoin in early 2014. And I've been buying ever since. I've never sold any holding that I have in digital assets. I've broadened it over the years beyond Bitcoin to Ethereum and some funds that now exist uh, for more diversification. A Bitwise uh, Hold 10, which uh, holds the top 10 crypto, which is 70, 80% of the marketplace, and a couple of other private funds that are more like market timing, day trading nonsense just to play the game uh, because that's just always sometimes fun to do. So I've never sold any positions. And in fact, we've broadened it not just owning the asset itself, but also investing in some of the companies that are the startups that are forming that are providing services in the space, not necessarily trading platforms, but reporting systems, custody programs, exchanges, and so on, the infrastructure, because you, you know, it's one thing to build a car, but I think the smarter play would have been to buy the company that made concrete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, which is what the cars have to in drive on. Yeah, right? certainly yeah. was true. Yeah, yeah. Right. so right. you know, it's so it's always for me a, a function of the infrastructure. How do you make it work? How do you make it real? How do you make it permanent? So I've been spending a lot of time over the years and engaging in this. So I didn't have a particular aha moment. It's been an, uh, a natural evolution, and and what I discover is that my experience is replicated by an increasing number of people, especially in the financial services field, that. As you learn more, you generally begin with a healthy dose of skepticism because on its surface, it seems to violate, in fact, does violate all the norms that we have grown up with in our training and experience. If it looks like a pump and dump scheme, it probably is. And it looks like tulip bulbs and it looks like beanie babies. But when you study it more and you learn more and you talk with the folks that are in this space, you begin to realize that there really is a there there, that it isn't just a Ponzi scheme. It isn't tulip bulbs because there's an underlying fundamental technology, which is what the rest of the financial services industry has now already grabbed onto the blockchain. That was ignored in the early days that Satoshi was developing Bitcoin. And now everybody has begun to realize that's real. Even if there's still skepticism about Bitcoin, nobody has any skepticism about blockchain. So most folks I'm discovering today are going through the due diligence process, they're beginning to recognize that this is real. It's not going away. And it's now raising new questions. How do I engage? How do I get my clients engaged? What's the proper way to do this? What's the regulatory status? What's the tax implications? And so on. Very tangible, practical questions that we would ask of any asset that we're contemplating purchase for our clients. And simultaneously, the other question is, what's the impact on my practice? Not just what is the impact on my clients, but what, how does it affect my financial planning practice? These are all very healthy questions and more and more advisors are asking them. That's a, a great sum up. It's really interesting to see the, your evolution from 2012 to today. I think it speaks to a broader point about the narrative that we're now seeing where, like you said, in 2009, Satoshi Nakamoto released the white paper on this, this random you know, forum uh, where people really just thought it was nerd money and it was just code for these nerds. And that kind of shift to, wait, okay, this is interesting, but it's only interesting for drug lords and criminals and terrorists. And then a few years later, it's like, oh, wait, no, is there perhaps 
an interesting investment opportunity. Arc being one of the first public, the first public fund manager to get exposure in Bitcoin in 2015. That was also at the same time that you had the VCs coming in um, with their kind of thesis of this is really just a new mechanism for uh, you know distributing trust. To now really central banks talking about this as a potential threat to their own monetary policies. All within a span of 10 years, it's kind of been really interesting to see that it's no longer a question of if, it's really now a question of when. So, Kathy, I'd love for you to kind of speak to to your first exposure in 2015 um, and what your perhaps aha moment was there. Okay. Well, our first exposure actually was in 2011 when Brett Winton right, and I were yeah. Yeah, <laughs> at brainstorm at our last firm. And um, I remember Brett talking about it every week, every week. So it was a curiosity, as you said, in the early days. Then we started, or I started, and, and Brett joined me soon thereafter, ARC. And we wanted to do some very serious research on, on Bitcoin because we did feel it was becoming more of a curiosity. And we wanted to answer the one question first, could it serve the three roles of money, any or all of them? And so Chris Berniski was our analyst at the time. And one of uh, our advisors, Art Laffer, agreed to collaborate with us on this white paper. And he put us through the ringer on it. So much so that by the end of it, you know, I should have been sick of it. I shouldn't have, you know, I, I shouldn't have wanted to know anything more about it. But instead, I remember the aha moment day was, wait a minute, Art, are you telling me this is like a reserve currency? Bitcoin, we're talking about. Art, how big could this be? And he said, well, how big is the U.S. monetary base? And at the time, it was $4.5 trillion. And this is probably when Bitcoin was $6 billion. We took our first position when it was $250. And I said, that was my aha moment. It was like, wow, a reserve currency is an exalted role. And I think since then, uh, we've battle tested this idea. We saw its role go down to the low 30% range in terms of, you know, its percentage of the whole network value of all crypto assets to now back close to 70% after, you know, the shakeout. So it's been a flight to safety currency there, you know, and like you, Rick, we are, our conviction has increased dramatically um, in the last few years. It still remains a story that does not yet have an end. We don't know what's going to happen, which is why it continues to be a Wild West environment in a lot of ways and why care must still be taken and why education is so vitally important. And that's why I created READAC, the RIA Digital Assets Council that you mentioned, that in my travels around the industry, I speak often at conferences as you do, Kathy, and, and I've spoken on exponential technologies a lot. It's the my most recent book, The Truth About Your Future, is all based on exponential technologies and how they're going to affect and alter every aspect of personal finance and beyond that, really the planet. And Digital assets play an unknown role at this point, meaning unknown in terms of its scale. You're right, it's not going anywhere. Uh, but which digital asset will survive and be dominant? Will it be Bitcoin, which at the moment has the biggest lead by far and is who's first going to be the winner? Or is it yet something that is not yet emerged? Uh, we have yet to see. 
But there is no question that the notion of a digital asset has too many benefits, too many potential benefits for governments, in fact, not merely for individuals. And along the way, it means that Satoshi's original vision is morphing dramatically. Satoshi, many would argue, was an anarchist. Keep it anonymous, uh, use it to undermine government fiat systems and erode the power of governments to now being embraced by those governments, by the world's largest corporations, including the virtually the entire banking structure. And as a result, we have to figure out not whether, but how this is going to evolve in the industry and what it means for consumers. And part of the problem is that Americans tend to be slow adapters, partly because we have the strongest currency in the world, because we have the strongest economy in the world, the most stable financial structure in the world, there isn't all that much incentive for ordinary everyday Americans to adapt because, you know, what we have ain't, you could argue, ain't terribly broken. But that isn't true in most of the rest of the world, Venezuela is the poster child at present. So we are seeing much broader adoption elsewhere in the world. And for those reasons alone, we need to be paying attention to this. One of the questions uh, this raises is about Libra. So it's been interesting to see the resistance to Libra. India, well, India had banned crypto anything, but we're seeing Germany and France basically saying no. Well, it's it's far beyond that, Kathy. We have Maxine Waters, the head of the House Financial Services Committee, saying, no, you're not going to do this until we hold hearings. We've got the the chairman of the Federal Reserve. We've got the secretary of the Treasury. We've got the president himself tweeting against this. So there's no further proof than the legitimacy of this, Mm -hmm. than the fact that the establishment on a global basis is all saying no way. Yeah. What's so interesting about that is... It has taken some of the political heat off of Bitcoin. It seems as though there's, because there's a throat to choke, meaning Facebook and everybody, and it's become very popular to choke that throat. This has been an easy thing to do. But it seems to me it's increased the odds of Bitcoin becoming the global digital currency. When Libra was first announced, we were thinking, wow, 2.7 billion people, huge unmet need, as you said, Rick, in the rest of the world. We're thinking, wow, this... They could have a shot at this, but because there is one throat to choke, it may be that they're not going to be successful. TBD. We're going to find out. But here's where I kind of diverge, and and I'm not sure how popular my view is on this point. I'm not convinced that Bitcoin is going to, in the future, be considered as a currency, uh, which clearly was Satoshi's goal in Mm -hmm. in the invention of Bitcoin. I'm not convinced it's going to work. There are political reasons for that statement, and there are also technological reasons. I mean, Bitcoin's capacity to execute transactions is severely limited, which is why so many other coins have been invented to solve that problem, Ethereum, Litecoin, Ripple, and so on. Because there's no way that Bitcoin technologically can execute as many transactions per second as, say, MasterCard. No, no, we would agree with that. And we've, uh, you know, sort of um, separated it out as absolutely true, very slow, uh, but the most secure by far. No question Never about been it. hacked. And so very large business to business transactions. 
can go over this network and probably won't mind waiting 10 minutes, right? No disagreement. However, that isn't the same as a currency in the consumer point of view. And more importantly, it means I believe that Bitcoin will become increasingly regarded as a store of value. Absolutely. Digital gold. Which is why we very carefully chose the name of our organization, the RAA Digital Assets Council, Mm -hmm. not referring to it as cryptocurrency. I think, first of all, we have to stop using the word crypto. Crypto is a very scary word. It has negative connotations. It, people think of death mm. uh, when you're dealing with it. And, <laughs> I never and thought of that. It's, just, it's not something that is going to win the hearts and souls of Main Street America, the word mm. crypto. So I prefer the word digital. Mm. And I don't believe that currencies is a necessarily accurate term because not everything in the world of the digital space is specifically aimed at being a oh, currency. We, we, we agree. We think there will be only three or four currencies, right? right? Uh, and that digital gold is Bitcoin's uh, probably primary role, given, I would agree with given that. the 21 million. Uh, and therefore, for that reason, I think you're right that while the governments around the world are most annoyed at and arguing with Facebook and by extension Libra, I think that this too shall pass. I think even if Libra doesn't advance, Libra too, issued by somebody else somewhere else, whether it's another private enterprise or whether it's a major government or whether it's the UN or maybe it's IMF, who knows who's going to do this. The notion of a digital asset, a true digital currency that is pegged to the dollar or pegged to the currencies of major fiat issued currencies around the world is the future because it offers so many wonderful benefits to the governments themselves. And this is why I think that the fear simply due to disruption and the fear of the unknown will dissipate over time as people and these uh, decision-making bodies grow more and more comfortable. So one of, uh, at the outset, I know Yassine, you're <laughs> probably trying to get an No, not at all. Here. I'm enjoying uh, the back and forth. <laughs> yeah, at the outset of our studying Bitcoin, Art Laffer said to me, you know, this is great. This is a rules-based monetary policy. It's the wrong rule, but they'll get it right. So he's saying a quantity rule is more uh, for a store of value uh, role, whereas a price rule is necessary for a means of exchange role uh, for money. So, And there are currencies out there. I'm thinking about Decred, which toggling between proof of work, proof of stake, maybe it can toggle between these, these various rules. I don't know, very early days. But none of this conversation so far is really doing the typical financial advisor a lot of good Mm -hmm. in the sense that most – we've been talking shop a little bit. Mm -hmm. And most advisors aren't familiar with these issues in sufficient detail and more importantly, don't know what this translates to for themselves and their clients. You're going to reach one of two conclusions as an advisor. Either you're going to recommend digital assets for your client or you're not. It's binary. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, you need to be able to explain effectively and competently why not. You can't simply dismiss it as a fad. You can't simply disparage it as tulip bulbs and beanie babies because none of that is valid. None of that is accurate. It demonstrates a lack of knowledge and that will be perceived as such by your client. Mm-hmm. So advisors, even if you hate it, you have to become expert in it. It's the same conversation about annuities. 
I don't like annuities. In our firm, we don't recommend annuities to our clients, but we're experts in them and we know exactly how annuities work and how they're constructed. And we understand everything about them so that we can have a materially profound conversation with our clients when the subject of annuities comes up. Advisors need to do the same thing with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. You need to understand the technology. You need to understand the features. You have to understand the difference between mining and you've got to understand the having. You you just have to understand the technology, whether you like it or not, so that you can more effectively explain to your client why you don't like it. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, if you do like it and you do believe it belongs in a client portfolio, you've got to figure out how much of it belongs in the client portfolio. And more importantly, how are you going to have the client obtain it? That is really fundamental. And the work that you're doing here at ART, Kathy, is leading edge. You're demonstrating, as you've been doing forever, a level of thought leadership that is head and shoulders above vast majority of the mutual fund industry, which tends to be just a, you know, us two kind of environment. Yeah. No, thank you, Rick. And you too. I mean, in terms of writing a book about, you know, the sorts of things that we're researching Day and night is just fabulous. Fabulous. Great for our community. Thank you. Yes. I actually want to expand on that point because I, I I love the point that you made where it's like, it's no longer sufficient to dismiss the notion that Bitcoin is real, right? It's like now there's almost a responsibility that these advisors have to work in the best interest of their clients. So uh, given that, you know, you've had so much experience in financial planning and in kind of investment management services, how do you exactly recommend these best practices? Do you have kind of explicit guidelines in which you are recommending or not recommending specific digital assets? Or, or is it more of a, you need to educate yourself first, and then from there, we can determine what the best kind of fit into your portfolio is. We do have a very definitive position at our firm, Edelman Financial Engines, on the issue of Bitcoin and digital assets. Number one, begin with education. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a message to both the advisor and the client. Under no circumstances should you invest in Bitcoin or other crypto or digital assets without fully understanding how this works. We'd say the same thing about an annuity or any other investment. You really need to understand this because the implications are high. We all know the historic volatility of Bitcoin. And because it's an exponential technology, you know it could be as easily wiped out as VHS did to beta. So we very clearly need to make sure you fully understand what this is and how it works. And that means you start with education. Number two, if you're going to invest, and we do not recommend it at this point, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, but if you are going to invest, keep the investment to 1% of your portfolio. There's really no reason to do more than that due to the exponential nature of Bitcoin and what is expected from it in many quarters. Bulls and bears both make money, pigs get slaughtered, as they say. Uh, So there's no reason to get greedy. If Bitcoin is going to deliver on its promise, a 1% allocation will be sufficient to uh, have a material impact on your financial plan. Uh, More than that, you are genuinely risking your portfolio, and there's no point to that. So 1% of the portfolio is sufficient. Uh, Next, Plan on maintaining that position for years, even decades, because it's already 10 years old and look what it's gone through. And next, 
expect massive volatility mm-hmm. while you hold this asset. As we have experienced, Bitcoin by its nature does not behave the way other asset classes behave, where you might normally see a gain or loss of 5 or 10% in a year. Bitcoin routinely does that in a day. <laughs> uh, and it's people use that as an argument to dismiss it. I, my attitude is, no, you, you need to acknowledge that's simply an inherent nature of this particular asset class. Uh, so because of that massive volatility, you need to make sure it doesn't scare you or entice you. And finally, because this technology could be replaced by the next technology, be prepared to lose it all, which is why if it's only 1% of the portfolio, that would be annoying, not devastating. So our attitude is go in with that attitude, but why then are we at Edelman Financial Engines not recommending it to clients at this stage? It's real simple. Our client base are predominantly mass affluent American investors. They are hardworking American families who have middle six figures to low seven figures of investable assets. Uh, These aren't the high net worth, ultra high net worth family office kind of clients that are typically found in the practices of most financial planners. And for our clients, we work only through 40-act products. Uh, So it's only through mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. We believe very extensively in a broad-based global diversification uh, with a long-term outlook and perspective and strategic rebalancing to keep that portfolio mix in line with the original goal. And we have an absence of regulation in this country on in Bitcoin. The SEC says it's not a security, so it's therefore not within their jurisdiction. The IRS calls it property. Uh, the CFTC does as well. We have different regulatory entities saying different things. And as a result of this, it's still the Wild West. Many of the funds that exist are startup organizations with questionable backgrounds, questionable funding, questionable financial solvency, legitimacy, sustainability. It's just simply not appropriate in our view for ordinary folks to engage. And that's why we have been so hopeful and anxiously waiting for the SEC to say yes to a 40-act product because that will be the sea change. So GBTC, I know it has a 2% fee per year. How do you feel about that? I know we've talked about it before. I own it personally, but because it requires an accredited investor, it is not appropriate or or available to most uh, investors. All of these funds are expensive because they tend to be private placements or uh, limited holdings, and they have a 2 and 20 fee schedule in many cases, which nobody would ever tolerate in a mutual fund. But because the marketplace is so limited, they can get away with it for now. That's not going to survive, at least the fee schedules are not. So it's a reflection that if you are going to play in the space, you're going to have to tolerate inefficiencies due to the limited market opportunities that exist. And that's one of the negatives. And that's a pretty big negative, quite frankly. Not only that, we had personal experience with it because that was our exposure to uh, Bitcoin. Well, you had massive delta between the underlying value and the share price. Yes, we bought it at no premium in the early days. Good illustration and example of the inherent limitations in trying to engage in this space right now. The SEC has made it very clear as to why they're not in favor of approving a Bitcoin ETF at this stage. And I understand their concern, motivation, and beyond all else, the SEC wants to protect consumers. You know, It's almost like the Hippocratic O thing, do no harm. They, mm-hmm. they want to, at the very end of the day, protect consumers from harm. And they're worried about custodians and custodian safety, legitimacy, that is understandable. I believe the industry is growing up sufficiently to resolve that concern. If they haven't already resolved it, they very, very soon will. The other concern the SEC has expressed is the volatility of Bitcoin. And I understand their concern about it, but my attitude is 
Get over it. <laughs> Bitcoin is a global asset, just like gold and oil. And the SEC can't control those prices. Right. That's for the marketplace to do. Assuming we have an informed investor, an educated investor who can determine whether or not this makes sense, they can decide for themselves if this volatile asset is appropriate for their portfolio. And that's where the guidance of the advisor comes into play. Mm -hmm. So I think that sooner or later, the SEC will shrug their shoulders and say it is what it is and recognize that the market will resolve this. And I'm hopeful that day comes sooner rather than later because at the moment with no 40 Act product, everyone is forced into these weird, unusual, closed programs, many of which are from the Cayman Islands or offshore. And I, our beat cop isn't you know, striking the beat because mm -hmm. they've ruled that Bitcoin itself isn't a security, but a Bitcoin ETF certainly would be. And it would allow the SEC to get in the game and that would do wonders for consumer protection. You would think that what Fidelity is doing has added legitimacy to this from a regulatory point of view, as well as Cambridge Research coming mm -hmm. out and saying, hey, institutional investors, you have to take a look at this. And, but, and of course, backed. I mean, the and, Intercontinental and Exchange and what I think what the SEC really tries to attack, like you said, volatility and, and issues with qualified custodianship, but also kind of market manipulation of the price. And so I, I would argue that something like backed, which tries to provide kind of very efficient price discovery. Uh, there was kind of a recent report uh, that was released by Bitwise in which they highlighted kind of the faked quote unquote trading volumes and tried to kind of determine which volumes were more legitimate and then base a reference rate on those volumes. Things like that you would think would be encouraging signs to then go and approve uh, an ETF. And so to your point, it's a combination of still kind of a, a lack of education as well as kind of this fundamental understanding that there is legitimate financialization. So someone like a Fidelity or someone like an intercontinental exchange that are building legitimate infrastructure is going to ultimately make it such that the SEC will have no choice but to I approve an ETF. I think though that it's going to get leapfrogged. Yeah. Uh, I think where the SEC will find itself focused is not on Bitcoin. This question mm -hmm. is almost becoming an academic one. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be focusing on tokenization. I mm -hmm. think that's what's next. Mm -hmm. And as a result of tokenization, we're already discovering due to the blockchain technology itself that asset classes are going to be invented on a massive scale in an incredibly rapid way. We already can tokenize real estate. Next, we're going to be tokenizing rare art and coins and automobiles. And NBA players. Uh, like <laughs> who attempted to do it two weeks ago. Exactly. And so we're, we're going to discover not just that there are 16 or 18 major asset classes, but there are going to be thousands of them. And this is going to turn the entire securities industry on its ear. And the SEC, as the chief regulator, mm -hmm. is going to have to deal with that. And once you begin to realize that we're tokenizing all that other stuff, Bitcoin will seem incredibly pedestrian. Yes. Yeah. No, that's a great point. It is a great point. In the interest of time, I want to leave it to one last question. And I, it might be the answer that you gave, but what are you most looking forward to in the next, let's say, 18 to 24 months in this space specifically? Is it an approval of an ETF or is it more kind of things outside of Bitcoin? What would excite me the most is the release of a 40 Act product. That will be the major event in the evolution of this technology. And, uh, and I'll say what I've been saying since 2014. Uh, we will see a 40-act product within the next uh, year and a half. 
I've been saying that since 2014. <laughs> so, Honest man. I, I will one day be right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And thanks again for tuning in to ARC's FYI podcast. Is there anywhere that we can find you online or how best to kind of... Well, if you would like to learn about the work that we do at Edelman Financial Engines, you can, of course, go to edelmanfinancialengines.com. If you would like to learn about the educational services we're providing, I'm doing it as an OBA through Readac. Just go to readac.com. That's the RAA Digital Assets Council. Financial advisors are welcome to join. There's no cost. Uh, we have a large number of organizations, uh, including Kathy uh, Ark is a member as well, all focusing on the distribution of education, unbiased, to allow financial advisors to decide for themselves what is best for them and their clients. Um, we're doing a variety of educational conferences uh, around the country throughout 2020, and you can learn all about that at readac.com. Great. Thank you very much, Rick. And thank you, Kathy. Oh, thank you, Yasin. <laughs> and thank you, Rick. Thanks for uh, having me on today. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating on iTunes. You can find the full ARC team on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.